You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right. You know, it's really funny, like, you know how pulpits usually have a mic put in them? And like, we thought whenever I first started preaching, no, we'll be the cool guy who holds the mic. And then you do that for five years and you're like, I don't want to hold the mic, but we don't have a regular pulpit. So now I get to use a mic stand, right? So it's, it's really funny. Like, it's, a pulpit's the most practical thing in the world. Um, so if you'll give me some of your money, we can get a pulpit. And uh, that's, really what, that's really what I'm trying to say. Anyway, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Uh, we're finishing up our yearly study of, of the five solas, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, and these are five of the most important doctrines of our faith. They're not the only doctrines of our faith. Uh, there are other cardinal doctrines of the faith, but these are five of the most important. Uh, and those doctrines are scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And this evening we're going to be looking at the doctrine of soli deo gloria, which is glory to God alone. And this doctrine affirms that all glory for everything belongs to God alone. Right? And when I say God alone, I mean God alone, not to saints, not to Mary, not to popes, not to priests, not to councils, or anything else in all of creation. All praise, all honor and glory belongs to God alone. No human, no nothing but God. This is a doctrine that's humbling for us, right? It's a doctrine that makes us sit back and realize that we don't deserve any praise or glory at all. Rather, again, all praise belongs to God. Now, all glory belonging to God alone is an absolute truth in every area of our life. All right, James tells us in chapter 1 of his letter that God deserves all praise because everything is a gift from God to us. Everything that you have is a gift from God. Your mental faculties... The life that you live in general, the family you have, the job you go to, the children you have, the air that you breathe, the food in your stomach, the clothing on your back, everything you have is a gift from God that you don't deserve. Everything is a gift from Him to us, given by grace in order that we might give God glory and praise. Everything. But as far as I can tell, I think that the doctrine of soli deo gloria is mainly focused on how God alone is to be praised for our salvation. I think that's most closely what the Reformers were getting at. God alone is to be praised for our salvation. Now, in, in light of that, I recognize, especially if you guys are students of the Reformation, uh, I recognize that this doctrine can be treated in a couple of different ways. And I talked to Steve and Dave, and I kind of went back and forth on how I wanted to approach this. Because in talking about soli deo gloria, we could talk about how God alone is to be worshipped. Right? This, this doctrine stands hard against idolatry. Right? And understanding that this doctrine to be against is, is against idolatry is certainly one of the things that the Reformers meant by it since they were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. And if you guys know anything about the Roman Catholic Church, you'll know that they love to pray to saints. They love to, in addition to attributing our salvation to Christ, attribute part of it to His Mother Mary. Uh, they're all about using icons having Mary intercede for them, and a bunch of other idolatrous, blasphemous trash, right? All kinds of stuff like that. 
Um, so certainly, the reformers meant we are to worship God alone. He alone is to receive praise and glory from his people. And, and, and preaching against idolatry in light of this doctrine would certainly be a worthwhile thing. But I think that primarily, this doctrine is to be applied to our thinking about our salvation. God alone is to be glorified in our salvation. So here's my big idea for you. If you want to take a note on this, here it is. God has ordered our salvation in such a way that only he can be praised for it. He saved us in such a way that only he can be praised for it. No believer can take even the smallest amount of credit for their salvation because all of it belongs to God. Now, I know that many of you hear that. God saved us in such a way only he gets the glory. All glory belongs to him. You hear that and think, well, duh, right? Of course, God receives all glory, right? God's the one who saved us. He deserves all glory for our salvation. But I I don't think that many of us realize necessarily, or, or maybe you do, but I think that some of you might not realize that there are versions of Protestantism, and I put that in air quotes for a reason, there are versions of Protestantism that threaten this doctrine of soli deo gloria. You know, today, most evangelicals in the world believe that they play some kind of a role in their own salvation. Even if it's a small role, a lot of evangelicals believe that they play some role in it. Um, And then this can manifest itself in a few different ways. Uh, One is that they think that they have to conjure up faith by their own strength in order to believe the gospel. Right? They They have to will themselves to faith of their own free will. And since they freely chose to believe, that's why they're saved. Or... They think that they have to do good works in addition to believing on Christ in order to be saved. You'll see this with the Church of Christ, right? That, that denomination that doesn't like to be called a denomination. It's really weird. Uh, they'll say that you have to believe on Christ and also be baptized in order to be saved, um, which is a heresy. <laughs> that, that's salvation by faith plus works. So salvation comes by faith alone. But again, so there's some versions of Protestantism that would say you have to believe and do something else in order to be saved. Um, Or another version is is the belief that you have to keep yourself saved by doing rituals or praying certain prayers, right? Like every night before you go to bed, ask God to forgive you of all your sins. And if you don't do that, you're going to lose your salvation, right? That kind of a ritualistic system or some other kind of work in order to remain saved. And in all those views, and we could give more and more and more about how many uh, alleged Protestants today think that they play a part in their salvation, at the end of the day, Many professing Christians think they've played a role in their salvation, and if that is true, then all glory does not belong to God alone. I'll say it again. If you believe that you played some kind of a part in your salvation, then you cannot believe that all glory is due to God alone in your salvation. Even if you believe that you played an incredibly small part in your salvation, you can still technically take some of the credit and some of the glory for your being saved. Even if it's the belief, and this is a popular one around here, even if it's the belief that I chose God by my own free will choice, and I chose to exercise faith in Christ, and that's why I'm saved. Even with that understanding, you're still able to take some credit for your salvation. Even though such a person would say, I didn't do any of the work, but I had to choose. I had to do something in order to be saved. You can still take credit for your salvation in some way. And I say that because in that belief, it was your choice that ultimately made the difference in your salvation. It was ultimately your choice that distinguishes you from the unsaved, not God's grace. In that understanding, the believer can say, 
God could not have saved me without me. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? God could not have saved me without me. Right? Or without my free choice, God could do nothing to save me. And I'm, look, I'm not saying that most people actually say that. Right? I'm not saying that. I bless God for the inconsistencies of some of our brothers and sisters around here who have poor doctrine. Uh, but they could say that if they were consistent with their own errors. Now, if that wasn't controversial enough, uh, let me say something else that's controversial. I'll put this to you. Any understanding of salvation, except the Reformed or Biblical, as I prefer to call it, the Biblical understanding of salvation that I'm going to preach to you this evening, any understanding of salvation, aside from the one I'm going to preach this evening, attempts to rob God of the glory due to his holy name. It attempts to rob God of glory, even if it's unintentional. Okay, And I think that most of the time it is unintentional with modern Protestants. But brothers and sisters, we ought to reject and detest any understanding of salvation that leaves a door open for any human being to boast. Even if it's just a crack an inch wide, we ought to hate it and reject it with impunity. We ought to reject any doctrine that says man plays a part in his own salvation. And we ought to do so not just because we like to be right, but because we love God. And because we're jealous for God's glory. As he says in his own word, he is jealous for his own glory. Now, in my mind, this doctrine is most closely linked to the doctrine of sola gratia, right? Salvation by grace alone. I think that salvation by grace alone and all glory to God alone are, are inextricably linked together. And I say that because since we're saved by God's grace alone, there is no room for human works or boasting, as we're going to see in our text this evening. So just a heads up for you, uh, this sermon tonight is going to be a lot about teaching that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's, that's, that's going to be probably the majority of this, even though I'm preaching on Soli Deo Gloria. Uh, and I'm going to do that because, to me, Sola Gratia plus Sola Fide plus Solus Christus equals Soli Deo Gloria. Or if you don't speak Latin, um, salvation by faith alone, or salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone must logically result in all glory belonging to God alone. Right? That's what I mean. So like the great theologians, the Beatles once said, one and one and one is three, right? Come together, right? Mom taught me that when I was a kid. Turn this on. This is great, right? As they said, one and one and one is three. I think soli deo gloria works that way. If it's by grace, through faith in Christ, then it must be all for God's glory and we can take no credit. So again, our salvation is accomplished by God in such a way that we can only give glory to him for it. But I know that was a long introduction. With that being said, Let's read the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is God's word. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole understanding of salvation, our whole salvation itself depends upon our understanding of your holy word. Grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, and that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts to your praise and honor. Help us to see this evening. We pray this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so Paul begins with, by grace 
You have been saved. Past tense, you have been saved. And this tells us right off the rip that Paul is addressing believers. Right? This passage is only for believers, people who have been saved. And I say that because it's only the believer who can say, I have been saved. It's only the believer who can say, I have been made right with God, and I will not perish under his wrath in the judgment. In fact, believers can say that our salvation is so secure, we can already assert, I have been saved, even though the judgment has not yet taken place. It's only the believer who can say that. Right? So I just want to be clear and upfront with you, and, and this is good, and I'm not necessarily questioning anyone's profession of faith, but I always want to be clear whenever I preach sermons like this. I'm preaching to believers. So if you're here and you're not a believer, I want to be plain. If you don't trust Christ to save you, if you don't daily follow Christ in faith, obedience, and repentance when you sin, because that's what a Christian does, that's our life as a Christian, if that's not you, then what I'm going to be teaching on this evening does not apply to you. It's for Christians. The work that God has done to save his people does not apply to you if you're not a believer. The Bible says that as you remain in your sins, in your unrepentant state, you have no hope and are without God in the world. The Word of God says you are a child of wrath, of the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ, and God will eternally punish you in hell unless you turn from your sins and believe on Christ. That's the reality of the situation. So my prayer for you this evening is that in hearing this gospel of grace that I'm going to be preaching, that God would draw you to his Son and that you would repent of your sins and trust in Christ to save you because he's your only hope. But if you do not and you remain obstinate and hard-hearted against God, then you have no part in this good news that is about to be preached. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. So I beg you, if you're a false convert or you're here and you're not converted at all, Turn to Christ and be saved. God says in Isaiah, turn to me, all you, the ends of the earth, and be saved. Turn to him. But verse 8, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, as you guys know, because I know uh, the teaching here is pretty all right, I like to think most of the time, you guys already have a pretty good understanding of grace, I would wager. Um, grace is unmerited favor. That's what grace is, unmerited favor. Not something worked for or deserved whatsoever. It's just something that God freely does for someone who is unworthy of it. That's right? one of the reasons why I hate these phrases you see on Facebook. You're worthy. No, you're not. Right? You're not worthy of anything. God's been gracious to you. Okay? But another definition we could have of, of grace is not just unmerited favor, but I've come to actually like this next definition a little bit more. Undeserved kindness from God. Undeserved kindness from God. He does something for you out of his very nature that is goodness. It's God's goodness on display to someone who doesn't deserve it. Undeserved kindness. Or we could say that grace is something that God has done. I love this. Something God has done for you and apart from you for your good and you do not deserve it. That's grace. God's done something for you without your help. He's done it, and you don't deserve it, and it's for your good. Paul says that it's by this unmerited favor, by this undeserved kindness of God that you have been saved. So if nothing else, I think Paul's clear just in this opening line. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul wants us to see you don't deserve salvation. Please hear me. 
you don't deserve salvation. And I know this is an old truth, but please, as much as you're able as a human being, let this hit you in a new way. You don't deserve to be saved. We don't. We don't deserve anything good at all, really, if we're honest. And I say that because we're sinners. Think about what it means to be a sinner. You're a breaker of the law of a holy God. You've used the body and the breath that he's given you to sin against him. You're a person who has refused to submit to him and refused to love him and respect him as he deserves and demands of all rational creatures. How can we deserve anything good from him? How? How can you deserve anything good from him? You can't. Right? You haven't earned or merited any kind of kindness from God whatsoever. But I'll tell you what you have earned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You have earned that. You have earned the wrath of God. You have earned spiritual death. And if we're honest, if the wages of sin is death, we've worked hard for it, have we not? We've worked hard for the wrath of God. We've lived our lives in sin. That's what we deserve. That's what we should get. And I say that because it's the testimony of Scripture that we deserve nothing good from God. If you'll look up just a little bit in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Robbie preached on this. I'm going to be stepping all over what Rob preached a few, few weeks ago. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Just to sum that up, Paul says, you were dead, spiritually dead to the things of God, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And I want to flesh out that word trespasses. To trespass means I know the line is here, and I don't care. Even if you were raised without the Bible in your home, Paul says in Romans 2, the Gentiles who don't have the word of God, they'll perish without it because God's written his law in their hearts and they know what they should do and they know what they shouldn't do and yet they sin anyway. Just like people, if you're like me, if you grew up in church and you had a Bible, you especially knew what God said and you still disobeyed. You know the line, your conscience is clear that you ought not go past it and you keep going past it. That's what it means to trespass. So in other words, and you were dead in your willful and glad violation of the law of God. You were glad to sin. And not only that, but Paul says you walked in them. You walked in your trespasses. Which is to say you loved it. You walked in it every day. You loved your sin. You cherished your sin. As a human race, just be real with me for a minute. This struck me when I was thinking about it. What does it mean to walk in my trespasses? It was our pleasure to dishonor God. You ever think about that? It was your pleasure to dishonor God. It was your pleasure to ignore Him and do as you saw fit. And I say that because you took pleasure in your sin. Did you not? The sin that you now war against and hate, Christian, did you not once take pleasure in it? You loved to dishonor God. And Paul says, We followed the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, and the passions of our flesh. All we did was sin. We willfully followed the world, flesh, and devil, and we loved it. We followed them like the children in the story of the Pied Piper followed him and his music out of the city to their deaths. And listen, we did not follow 
the world, flesh, and devil, we weren't begrudging when we followed. We followed saying, this is beautiful music to my ears. This is great. Let's keep going as long as we can. There is much pleasure in sin. There is much joy here. I love my sin. That's what we did. Think about who you were and how you lived before God saved you. You know that I'm telling the truth. You loved to dishonor him. You love to live by your own rules. So I want to put this to you. How can such people deserve God to save them? How can you deserve God to save you if that's you and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked? In Romans 8, 7, Paul says that we were hostile to God. We hated him. You may have never said it with your mouth. You may have never consciously thought it, but the way you live proved that you hated God. Hostile to God. There's no way such people could deserve God's mercy and grace. No way. Really, if God were to do only justice, please hear me on this, He should hate you. I mean, what a thought. God should hate me because of my sin. He should. Because that's what I actually deserve for my sins. But Paul says, by grace, you have been saved. By grace. So God has decided to show mercy and not give us what we deserve. And instead, give us grace and save us. In fact, Paul says that our salvation is all of grace. And I say that because it's the only thing he mentions here. By grace you are saved. Nothing else is mentioned. It's all of grace. And since grace Follow, me with, follow with me on this logic. And since grace means undeserved and unmerited favor and kindness from God, that means we didn't do anything in our salvation. You didn't do anything. Paul later says our salvation is not of works, not of anything that we do or have done in the past or will do in the future, not of works, but by grace you have been saved. As Paul says in Romans 3 and 4, works are excluded in this salvation. Our worth and merit and ability play no part in our salvation since it is by grace. So, if salvation comes to us by grace and not by any works that we do and not by anything we have merited or deserve, then that leaves only one option to explain our salvation. And that's this. Salvation is all of God. If it's not by works and it's not by merit, it must all be of God. It's all done by God on our behalf. So what exactly has God done to save us? Right? And for this next bit of the sermon, what I, what I want to do is I want us to flesh out just three steps. And there's many more that we could go into in the order of salvation. But I just want to look at three major things that happened in order to save us. And in thinking about those things, we'll see what God has done to save us so that we can see salvation is truly by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I want you to see that salvation is all of him and none of you. So what's the first thing in our salvation? The first is this. God has predestined us for salvation. He has predestined every individual believer for salvation. He chose us to be saved, right? He chose you. If your faith is in Christ this evening, I want you to know for certain that you are saved because God chose you. He chose you. 
Now, we're not going to cover all of the depths of sovereign election this evening because I don't have time. It's another sermon for another day. And if you have any questions, I'd love to talk with you after church, uh, after the service, about uh, election or predestination or whatever. Uh, feel free to come talk to me. But what I want to do is I just want to declare to you in the most plain terms what the Bible says about God's choosing you. And I hope that you'll receive it by faith. Not by blind faith, but by seeing plainly what God has said in his word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, the apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This text makes it clear that our salvation didn't start with us. It didn't start at the cross. It didn't start in the Garden of Eden. This text makes clear that our salvation started in eternity past, before the foundation of the world was laid. Before anything else, our salvation originated in the mind of God by His good decree. It started with an act of God. We, every individual Christian, was chosen by God to be saved. He called you by name before He even created the world that you would be saved. And He chose us to be holy and blameless before Him and to be united to Christ by faith. In love, says Paul, he predestined us to become his children. He preordained, foreordained, predestined. And he did this according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace, he did this. We were chosen by grace so that we would praise God in his selection of a sinner. He's blessed us dearly in his grace of election to us. So Christian, I want you to see and know this. God chose you. I mean, it's, it's that simple. I mean, I don't know how else you would understand Ephesians 1. God chose you, and that's why you've become adopted into the family of God through Christ, because God predestined you for it. That's why you've become saved. And this is all of the pure, sovereign grace of God. And if, you, if you're wanting to re rebuttal, like throw a rebuttal out in that in your heart, let me ask you this. Did you choose yourself to be saved before the foundation of the world when you didn't exist? No. God chose you is what Paul says. God chose. And you might say, but I chose God. And yes, you did. You did choose God. But you only chose God and came to Christ to be saved because he chose you first. That's why we sing that beautiful hymn, All I Have is Christ. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. As John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love him because he loved us first. We chose him because he chose us first. And hear me, I want you to know that this was not owed to you. This choosing from God was not owed to you. God didn't choose, a lot of Calvinists get this, uh, twisted. I was actually talking uh, to, to a, a sister on the other side of the camp on this one last week, and some Calvinists think that, that they were chosen because there was something good in them, or they were chosen because there was something worthwhile in them. That is blasphemy. That's nonsense. 
There's nothing good in you to choose. All there was for God to see was a wicked, worthless, fallen sinner. God didn't choose you according to merit. He chose you according to grace. He didn't have to choose you. But Christian, he did. (laughs) He did. By grace, you have been saved. But our salvation didn't come only by predestination, right? We're not Muslims. Salvation doesn't come strictly by predestination. There was work that needed to be done in order for us to be saved. God's law had to be fulfilled. Atonement for sin had to be made. Sin had to be paid for. Right? Work, in other words, work had to be done in order to save us. But even then, we didn't do the work, did we? We didn't do anything. We didn't do the work. We know that God sent His Son into the world in order to accomplish our salvation. Right? God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took a human body to Himself, was placed in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, and was born a human being, the God-man, in order to work out our salvation for us. Jesus Christ came into the world to do the work of redemption on our behalf, to do it for you, Christian, to save you. And you guys know his work. David preached on it last week very well. God demands that we obey him with perfect obedience and righteousness. But we can't do it, can we? Our nature is sinful. So what does the Son of God do? He obeys God perfectly in our place, and he lives without sin. And perfect obedience is rendered to God by Jesus Christ our Lord, and it's done in our place. And not only that, but God demands sin to be paid for. He demands his justice to be vindicated. And again, the Son of God says, I will pay for their sins with my own blood. And that's what Christ did on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God for sinners. And he was punished in our place. And he was punished for our sins. The just for the unjust. The righteous one for the unrighteous. And then God raised Christ from the dead as proof that his work had been received by God and that God is pleased to save sinners through what Christ has done. So listen, I know you guys know that. You hear us say that week in and week out, that gospel message, that that work of salvation that Christ has done. But hear me. You did nothing in that, did you? You did nothing. Christ did it. Christ did it. You didn't offer perfect obedience to God because you couldn't. You didn't atone for your sins because you can't. Christ did it. So hear me out on this. This is a beautiful thought. Your salvation came on conditions of atonement and perfect obedience, and God met his own conditions to save you in Christ. Your salvation came on conditions and God met them himself in the person of his son. Christ accomplished salvation in your place and he did it by the plan of God to save you. You did nothing. By grace, you have been saved. And all of this work of God is received by faith. Is what Paul says. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Now hear me. You must believe on Christ in order to be saved. You must. It's a non-negotiable. You must believe on Christ to be saved. And at this point, many people will say, I got you, Dave. (laughs) Right? I got you. I believed. I did that. I freely chose to exercise faith in Christ to be saved. And because I chose to exercise faith in him, that was the little part that God required of me to do. And I did that. And that's why I'm saved. And yes, you did. Yes, you did believe. You did exercise faith. I won't deny that. But how? 
How did you exercise faith in Christ? How did you come to believe? Let me pose a series of questions to you. Why do you believe when so many others don't? Why do you believe when others don't? Why do you believe when your siblings don't? Why do you believe on Christ when your parents don't? When your friends don't? When your coworkers don't? Why do you believe when your boss doesn't? Why do you believe when your children don't believe? Why is it? What, what separates you from them? Is it because you're smarter than them? Is it because you make better life decisions than them? Is it because you're wiser or more logical than them that you've come to believe on Christ and they don't? No. No, no true Christian would say that. Because the answer, why do you believe and they don't? By grace. For by grace you have been saved. You believe by grace. God has caused you to believe in Christ. Hear me, you did not conjure up faith in and of yourself. You, you didn't. You don't have that kind of a power. You don't have that kind of authority. You're not strong enough. You don't have the ability to conjure up faith in and of yourself. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were spiritually dead. And the dead are unable to exercise faith in anything. They're dead. Now look, I'm not the smartest man in the world, but I've been, enough to, I've been to enough funerals, looked down into enough caskets, and seen enough corpses to know that the dead don't do a whole lot. <laughs> For real. Uh, they rot. That's about it. If we're going to keep it real, they can't exercise anything. No one's ever looked down at a dead body and said, what faith? <laughs> no one. No one's ever done that. Dead people don't do anything. So you couldn't exercise faith in and of yourself. God's going to have to cause you to believe. Now look, at this point, someone might object. I'm, I'm ready for you. Someone might object and say, that's a metaphor, and you were dead in your sins. That's a metaphor, and I think that's a little bit of a stretching of the text. I'll play along. I'll play that game. You're wrong if that's what you're thinking, but I'll, I'll, I'll play along for this evening. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Apostle Paul says the natural person, that's how you were born, Christian, how you were born in your natural, unconverted, unbelieving state, not born again, such a person is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God. And that doesn't mean that an unbeliever can't understand theology because there are plenty of atheists with seminary degrees, okay? But that means that an, that, that an unconverted person, the natural person, cannot savingly understand the things of God because they are not able. Well, you say, what are the things of the Spirit of God? I don't know, things like the gospel maybe? <laughs> the things of the Spirit of God, chief amongst them being the gospel. The natural person is not able to understand them, meaning they lack the ability to believe them. They are dare I say it, totally enable. And this is not metaphor. This is Paul teaching doctrine in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's teaching a doctrine. So how then did you come to believe if you're dead in your sins? But by faith you were saved, and faith is a non-negotiable. You're saved by faith in Christ, but I'm dead in my sins. I'm spiritually dead. How can I believe? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the apostle Paul writes, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
So Paul says, like in Genesis 1, when God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. In that same way, by the divine word and will, God said, let there be light in his heart. Let there be light in her heart, and there was light. And we have received light. And this is light so that we can, says Paul, have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is saving knowledge that God has spoken into our hearts. This is the light of faith. So we could paraphrase this and say, God has spoken, let there be faith into our hearts. And there was faith, and it was good. And that's why I believe. That's why you believe. And there's other places we could go. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, God made us alive together with Christ. The spiritually dead become spiritually alive. And the first thing you do when you're spiritually alive is you believe and God made us alive. We can go to Philippians 1.29 where Paul says, It has been granted to you to believe. Which means you couldn't do it until God granted it to you. And since not everyone believes, we can deduce that God does not grant all to believe. But you believe by God's grace. God is the one who made you spiritually alive. He is the one by his Holy Spirit who gave you the gift of faith so that you could believe on Jesus Christ and receive salvation. God chose, Christ redeemed, and the Holy Spirit gave you the gift of faith. It's all God's work. It's all of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is why Paul goes on to say, and this is not your own doing. Meaning you didn't do any of this, right? That this and this is not your own doing refers back to everything that came before. I, I mean, I, I'm just telling you what the, the Greek gr grammar people say, right? Because I can't read Greek, just keeping it real with you. Uh, but this refers back to everything, right? The salvation is not your own doing. The grace that saved you is not your own doing. And the faith by which you received salvation by God's grace was not your own doing. None of it was your own doing. Every single step of the way in your salvation has been the act of God on your behalf to save you. And I want to stop here for a second. This isn't just a theology lesson. Please don't get it twisted. I'm not out to try to make an army of Reformed Baptists, although that would be awesome. <laughs> I want you to see that you are a recipient of what God has done. I want you to see that you're a recipient of what God has done for you. This is what it means to be saved by grace. That God has done it all. Every step. Everything's been done for you. Every condition that God made on your salvation has been met by God himself for you. That's what it means to be saved by grace. And Paul says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Paul says your salvation is a gift. It is not something worked for. It's not something deserved. It's not something merited. It is his free gift. And hear me, if you had to do even the slightest work, it would no longer be a gift. I'll give you an illustration on this because my niece just had a birthday. right? If you go to a birthday party... Uh, and you have a very expensive gift that you're going to give, which I don't do because I'm broke. Uh, but if you had a very expensive gift that you wanted to give, like if you had Crystal Stiltner money, um, yeah, that was for you. Uh, and, and you go and you have this great gift and you go up to the person whose birthday it is and you said, give me a penny and I'll give you a present. All right? Or that might seem weird, but I'll tell you one you actually probably have done, especially if you're married. Give me a kiss and I'll give you your present. 
or give me a hug and I'll give you your present, right? Just do this small thing for me. Give me a hug and the gift is yours, right? And that might make us laugh or chuckle. We think that's cute because the kiss or the hug is really nothing. Like the penny would be nothing. I mean, what is that to a very expensive, nice gift? It didn't cost you anything. Uh, but the gift actually did cost something. And that's what makes it funny. But hear me out. In reality, if you make the person getting the gift do something in order to receive it, it is no longer a gift. It's no longer a gift. If someone has to do something in order to get a gift, if they have to give you something in order to receive a gift, it's a business transaction. Or if they have to do an act, no matter how small, if they have to do an act in order to receive a gift, it's now their wages. It's now what is due to them. It's deserved by them now because they have done the work that you required of them to receive the gift, no matter how small the work was. It's now their due, and they can demand it of you. Even if the gift is worth a million dollars, it's no longer a gift. If someone had to do something for it, it is now owed to them since they met the requirement in and of themselves. Listen to me when I say this. I'm deadly serious. God will not owe you anything. He will be indebted to no man. He'll owe you nothing. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him who has given a gift to the Lord that he might be repaid. God won't owe you anything. Salvation is his gift. He gives it freely. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't summon up enough goodness or faith in and of yourself to get it. No, you can only receive it. Well, no, we have to receive it with open hands, and that's not a work. Listen, buddy, you don't have hands. God has to give you hands in order to receive the gift. And he has, and he gives this gift to whom he wills, not as a result of works. It's the gift of God. So do you see your salvation as a gift? Just real quick. Do you see your salvation as a gift, or do you think you contributed something to it? Or for it, rather. Do you think that you met some kind of requirement that now obligates God to save you? Or do you see that God has done it all for you? Because listen, if you factor in at all in your understanding of salvation, no matter how small, then you can no longer see it as a free gift. It's impossible because it's no longer of grace. But Paul then goes on to sum up the bottom line and result of this plan of salvation and work of God. Paul says, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Paul is telling us that God has accomplished our salvation in such a way that no human being can boast whatsoever in anything they did to be saved. God chose us to be saved. God accomplished the work of our salvation through His Son. And God calls us to have faith by His Holy Spirit in order for us to receive salvation. So I'll pose a question to you. Can you point anywhere along the spectrum of salvation and say, I did that? Can you point anywhere along the spectrum of salvation and say, look what I did? Absolutely not. God has saved you in such a way that you just sit back in awe and point up to the heavens and say, look what He did. 
Behold the grace of God towards a miserable sinner like myself. Look at Him. Isn't He glorious? That's how God saved you. All grounds for human boasting and their salvation is completely destroyed by the Word of God. It's completely destroyed by the salvation that God gives by grace. And God likes it like that. God likes it like that. He wants us to be humbled and say, look at Him. Look at Him. He is great. Look at what the sovereign, powerful, gracious, mighty God of the universe has done for a sinful wretch like me. God takes pleasure in us thinking little of ourselves and making much of Him. But why? Why does God save us like this? And if you're wondering, I'll be less than 10 minutes. Don't worry. I know I've been up here for 40 minutes. Hear me out. Why does God save us like this? Why would he desire to save us in a way that takes boasting away from us? Why? All right. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He says, I am God. There is no other God but me, and I give my glory to no one. In essence, God is saying, I don't share. I might show kindness and mercy and grace on my creation, and I do because I am good, but I do not share my glory. I do not share my praise. Man will not take credit or responsibility in his salvation. Rather, he won't take credit. It won't come by his merit. He won't share his glory with anyone, and that includes you. He's jealous for his own glory. And he knows that if he allows us to play a role in our salvation, then we get to take some of the credit. Even if it's just a little bit. But as Stephen read in our call to worship in Romans 11, God has created all things in order to give himself glory. All things were made by him, for him, through him, and to him. And therefore it is good and fitting that our salvation would reflect that truth. God saved us by himself, from himself, for himself. It's good and fitting that our salvation reflects that truth, that all things are for his glory and praise. God desires us to see him as supreme in all things, and he has so especially ordered our salvation so that we can see that with crystal clarity. All things are for his glory. But not only that, but if there was something that we did in order to secure our salvation then that means that we get to boast, right? I don't just mean take a little bit of credit, but I mean that if our salvation came in any part from our own will or him who works or him who runs, Paul says in Romans 9, if it came from anything of us, then we get to boast. Not just take credit, but we would actually have grounds to brag that we did something. We would actually have grounds to brag that we're so great or that we're so smart or we make such good life decisions, or we're so logical, or we're so wise, or we're so clever, and that's why I made the good decision to be saved. But God says this, Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God hates boasting. He hates boasting. 
He hates pride. He hates it when humans boast in anything, in any achievement, let alone their salvation. So in keeping with his character of hating pride, he has taken away and stripped all avenues of human boasting in ourselves because he desires a humble people. He wants us to be humbled. And when we see that our salvation is all of grace and all for his own praise and glory, we are humbled in his presence. God saving us in this way puts us on our faces in front of God in worship because it deflects all attention away from ourselves and all glory and praise and honor to the God of our salvation, the one who has given grace to the undeserving. So since our salvation is clearly all of grace, it is also clearly all for the glory of God. To quote a very famous quote from the Puritan Jonathan Edwards, you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You played no part in your salvation. God did it all. All of it. Therefore, he gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. This is right. This is fitting. This is what pleases our God. So far be it from us to ever try and take credit for what is so clearly a work of sovereign grace that our God has done for us. So may we worship our God in humility. May we look and see that we are His workmanship. And when we think on our salvation, may we fall to our knees in love and gratitude owning with joy and pleasure that all glory belongs to our God, for he has done wonderful things for us. And may we sing along with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you thank you for choosing us. Jesus, thank you for, for doing the work of our salvation and redeeming us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for, for bringing us to faith and bringing us to Christ and enabling us to see. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all glory belongs to you. You have saved us. We are your workmanship. God, I pray that you would humble us with this truth. That it wouldn't just be theological knowledge for us, though, Lord, that has its merit, that, that's good. But, Lord, let it, let it sink deep in our hearts that we might say, I'm saved by grace alone, and may God receive all glory for it. Grant that to us, God. Give us humble hearts that we might worship you the way that you desire. I pray you'd seal this truth to our hearts, that we would never boast. That we would always point to you and say, look what my God has done. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.